So, Scott, I was thinking. Mm. Now, last episode, we did the Star War, uh, and I was thinking about what we should do today, and it seems we should, there's only one thing that we should do. What's that? The Star Trek. Oh, it's, a, it's like a theme restaurant. Speaking of, of themes. <laughs> subtle. So subtle. We went through several seasons, we never changed the theme, and then we stopped recording because life got kind of mean, but I'm here to say, it's a brand new day, cause the Slumgullion has a new theme, it's the same show, just a whole lot shorter, this is the Slumgullion theme. Written for you, our loyal supporter. Jeff and Scott still talk a lot, but time they ain't got, still they'll give it a shot on the Slumgullion. Wow, 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 wow. That's right, it's the Slumgullion. Wow, 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 wow. Hold on tight for the Slumgullion. A Quinn Martin production in color. And welcome to the Slumgullion, America's only podcast. I'm happy you your host. You think there'd be more by now? Uh, you know what? I actually think it peaked with us. Yeah. Yeah. After us, what's the point of anybody doing anymore? I watermark. And then, you know, it's just a series of gradations down to the shore and, and the pond scum. So. Wow, that's a great way. That's a great way to uh, describe your competitors. I think I may not include that part. Oh, come on. We can have a nice little into the mud scum queen. <laughs> Well, we, we, we have been looking for a new catchphrase. So I'm so glad you caught you knew that reference. Oh my god. I said that line to somebody and they just looked at me funny, like, what the hell are you talking about? And I was like, Oh man, great Steve Martin movie. But that's not what we're talking about today. It's not. By the way, into the mud scum queen, my favorite response to that is, Why Scott, this you're like the third person to tell me that today. <laughs> If Kathleen Turner had said that in the middle of two brains, it might have been even funnier. Maybe, but it's hard to improve on that movie. That, very, very true. But that again, that is not what we are talking about today. No, but we are going to talk about a movie for a second. Actually, it's a dot movie file that I uploaded to our website today. Guys, please indulge me for a moment because I had a pretty good 420. I mean, oh, the, did you? Well, the pot was average, but. I did get to revisit with some old friends. Mike and Ike returned to Earth to make people very uncomfortable at a Midwestern Poetry Slam. And there's a video of the tight 10 they delivered in these very weird circumstances on 420. And I urge you to go to our site right now, theslumdellion.com, and enjoy it. It's weird. It's wild. It's wacky. It's heartwarming. It's it's all or none of those things. You'll have to decide. I really want to know how you got that video. Wait. No, no, I don't. I'm afraid you might have broken a few commandments. A few. <laughs> that explains that. But anyway, what are we actually talking about today, sir? Well, today we're going to talk about the end of Picard. And by the end of Picard, I don't mean the end of the character because I'm not that optimistic. But the show is over. <laughs> I, I'm just going to come out. People who remember our updates on season one, first of all, that brain space could be put to much better use. Second of all, it did change my perspective on Picard. I'm a big Star Trek fan with big, big reservations about 
the thing I love so bigly. So it's not it's not love hate. It's just it's one of those things where yeah, the love outweighs the bad, but when it's bad, it's really really bad. So Picard was kind of one of those things. He was he was my he was the epitome of my Star Trek yin and yang, which is what I experienced all through the TNG era. Liked a lot of it, but boy, when I didn't like it, I was just digging my nails into the palm of my hand until I drew blood. So what I disliked about Picard was he was just another formula. Yeah, he was a character, but there were tropes and formulas through the series. And his was the big inspirational tongue lashing at the end of an episode to get them out of whatever predicament that they were in and could not techno babble their way past. It was so typical that it started cracking me up and I actually ended up liking it, but it left a sour taste about Picard, the character. Time went on. In season one, we saw this 90-some-year-old man just get the shit beaten out of him, and I was here for that. Picard was humbled. He was told literally to fuck off by another admiral. He he had his reputation trashed. It was a glorious festival of schadenfreude. And it kind of got me past what I disliked about Picard, because they sort of lampshaded that, yeah, he has some tendencies that are not all that appealing. And he's going to pay for it. So at the end of Picard season one, I was very happy with with what I'd seen. And I was ready to see more. Season two came. I thought, oh, you know what? I'm fine. I'm good. I got I got past my hate. It's like continuing to see the therapist. You know, once you're over what happened with your mom. What's the point? So I didn't see season two at all. No, no real clue about what happened, except uh, Alison Pill became Alice Creech. That's all I know. And and I don't even know if that's true. I have to give Terry Metalis a lot of credit for the way he structured this season, because I didn't miss really anything that I didn't know in season two. And and probably because oh. so many people were, were new for season three. But we're old. And I hate saying this, but yeah, no, they they they, they definitely pulled the the Force Awakens on um the first two seasons of Picard. We're just going to ignore most of everything that happened to give the fans what they have told us that they want. Prime example of that: what the fuck happened to Laris? Mm, yeah. She was in the first episode of this season, but then Blamo, much like almost all the other characters from Picard season one and two, they vanished. Well, this is the the studio takeover gambit writ large. You know, every time they fire the head of production at some motion picture studio and they, of course, they fire his team. Everyone goes out. They bring in a new executive suite and those people make it job one to shit on whatever was done by the previous regime. Now, the showrunners of Picard season three were not the showrunners of Picard season one. Right. Characters like Laris, other characters, other situations were all things they inherited. And sometimes you inherit great stuff. And sometimes you inherit, you know, your uncle's fishing cabin in the in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and there's a lot of spiders in it. It just gets broken into a lot, and then eventually it burns down. That's kind of, I, I think, what Terry Metalis thought he he inherited. So he made a lot of the stuff his own. Now, as it happens, I like his version of Star Trek, because his version of Star Trek is is nostalgic about a lot of the same things I am. I like about maybe 
70% of his version of Star Trek. Now, I will say this. I will say this. Um, while I had said after Episode Nine that my interest in Star Trek legacy has severely diminished because of the death of Captain Shaw, after the end of this, uh, after the end of the season, after the end of the last generation, I got to say I'm actually kind of looking forward to it now. If we actually got Captain Seven, First Officer Raffi, and Guidance Counselor Jack on the Enterprise G, I'm kind of for that. Mm-hmm. I'm actually completely and totally down for that. And as much as I hate the fact that they killed Shaw, I think they just they killed one of the most interesting characters that Star Trek has created since Deep Space Nine. I actually understand it. It wasn't about Shaw. It was about Seven's journey. And mm-hmm. I'm accepting that now just because I loved her as captain of the Enterprise. I just as a character arc, I thought that was beautiful. I want to say, oh, well, he he's just a character who blew up and that happens sometimes. It's a, a harmonic convergence of actually charisma and, and a particularly well cast part. But I don't think that's the case here. I don't think what happened with Shaw was accidental at all. I think he was deliberately written to be antagonistic oh, yes. and off putting in the very beginning, which is what in an average series of Star Trek, Shaw would have been the obstacle that she had to get past to complete her arc, as you said. Yes. It's it's Seven's arc. He was just the antagonist, except he wasn't. Mm -hmm. And at the very end, he's the thing that actually gets her, boosts her over the obstacles, which are her own mental blocks at that point. I'm sure sure there's a fair amount of survival guilt, particularly. The captain died. One of the things you're supposed to do as a first officer is make sure the captain doesn't die. So she couldn't have been feeling good. And when she gave that speech. Oh, yeah. To her, you know, willing but uninspired and and frankly terrified group of surviving officers on the bridge to say that, you know, we're all that's left of Starfleet. She said, we've lost our captain. And there was a look on Jerry Ryan's face. Her expression didn't really change, but you could tell that those words were like a stab in the heart. Yep. yep. I, I saw that too. And I was like, okay, I mean, here's the thing. As much as I may have been frustrated by plot points or the way certain story beats were done or well, lack of story, the individual moments in this season were amazing. Yes, they were. There were some truly phenomenal individual moments throughout the entire season. I mean, my God, the data lore thing, Mm. that whole sequence with just Brent Spiner, you know, at the top of this form, that first conversation between Beverly and Picard. I mean, that was some of the best acting either the two of them have done in that show. In that show, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Data putting his hand on Picard's shoulder when he, you know, when he doesn't know what to do. Um, why am I sensing joy in the finale? Yeah, that was funny, and and then just that maniacal look on his face when the focus shifted. Oh, it that, was that was perfect. Th- this was a level of Star Trek with a jokiness that did not make me cringe. Let me oh. rephrase that. That's not even okay. fair. Okay, uh, these are Star Trek scripts. With, with wit rather than jokiness. There is a lot of humor in the show, much more than there used to be. And when there used to be, again, it was spotlighted and yeah, da, 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 you know, they'd be helped on and off the stage by clowns. It was highlighted. 
Jonathan Frakes delivery in the final episode on, do you even hear yourself? I mean, yes. chef's kiss. Well, let me, since you brought him up, I always liked Jonathan Frakes. Uh, I, Absolutely. I, liked, I, I liked his easygoing performance. I liked, he had a character, he committed to it. He was, he committed to his scenes, but he played it at a tone like, yeah, at a, to a certain extent, I'm wearing pajamas and this is all ridiculous, but let's have some fun. I'm having fun. He was like a guy who was having fun, so invited you to have fun with him. But that kind of covered up with, you know, that sort of kind of easygoing charm that, that goes a long way in a long-running series. He's a damn good and subtle actor. There's a ton of stuff he did, especially in the prison scene with Marina Sirtis or when he was with Michael Dorn in the in the Borg Cube. There's stuff he's doing that is very minimal, but it's so obvious what's going on with his character. I don't know if that's just, if you're going to get good, you know, by 71, you're going to be damn good. Or if it's just the writing gave him enough to play to show layers that were always, that were already there and always there. I have always been a fan of Jonathan Frakes as an actor and as a director, but there were some, that's the thing. The thing about Next Gen for me as always, like I said, I didn't like a single character the first couple seasons. I didn't even start liking the show really until Best of Both Worlds. True story. I mean, I liked Measure of a Man. That was the first show where I went, wow, this could be this could be interesting. But Best of Both Worlds was when I went, OK, I am completely in. And with Star Trek, I mean, granted, they tried it. But at the end of the next generation, there still wasn't that much character evolution. You know, the big character evolution next gen was Picard finally sitting down to play poker. It was nice, but that was pretty much it. You know, the characters were pretty much the same characters in the beginning that they were at the end, more or less. In this one, you know, they were able, I hate using this as an example, it's the only way I can do it. They wrote the next gen characters with Deep Space Nine writing. I don't know why you hate that example, because it's, it is opposite at the very least. But to me, that that's how that is really how I feel about this. They they took the Deep Space Nine level of characterization, which the next gen never got. Right. Or they hinted at with the next gen. They did do some little things, but I mean, we got amazingly fully fleshed characters out of these people. And I think that's why the nostalgia works so well. I have to agree with that because, you know, I hadn't thought of it in those terms. But now that you bring it up, yeah, if people are just coming back and winking at the audience and, and uttering their beloved old catchphrases, collecting their checks and leaving. Yeah, you know, but but that's that's a sitcom reunion show. Yes. The, if if you take characters, assume they've changed in the interim, and then show what that means in the present, in the presses, give your actors something pretty damn meaty. Yeah, it's that's the only excuse for nostalgia. I think they told a story that would have been impossible with any other set of Star Trek characters. Absolutely. Here's the thing, and here's why. Because, let's be honest, over the 10 episodes that took place over, like, what, two days? The story is kind of thin. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have eight episodes of, well, actually, maybe... Bought six episodes of Changeling, so we don't know the Changelings are there in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, fuck the Changelings. Now we have a Borg movie. 
Right. Now, I'm not saying it was a bad film. It was not. The Borg film was a great film, but it seemed kind of disconnected from the first half of the season. Just a bit. Oh, absolutely. I, I think Sean Farrick made a point of that. Uh, yes. It, at the end of uh, his ups and downs, when he said, and the changelings are involved. Remember them? Yeah, sure. They, they did get drawn. But yes, if this had been any other series, I probably would have found the story pretty thin. But in this case, I didn't mind because where it was thin, they used that screen time. That's the thing. To develop the, char- this, develop the characters. It was all emotional damage. There are story beats that don't work. There are things that make no sense. I mean, there is a lot of the typical Star Trek gobbledygook and things that under ordinary circumstances I would go, Ew. But yeah, the nostalgia completely worked in this sense. Unlike, I hate saying it, you know, the sequel to the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, and okay, of course, granted, this one actually used the legacy characters in a far more effective way. Yes. So there is that. But I mean, just the whole idea of nostalgia, you know what I mean? I mean, the sequel trilogy of Star Wars played on nostalgia and failed miserably. It started off on the wrong foot. It poisoned the nostalgia well before yes. it got anywhere. Yes, it exactly. had all three of them in the first movie, and it it missed its chance for that. It was too much of a of an obvious torch passing exercise. They were just bringing the old folks on and, and saying, "Hey, what do you think of this young whippersnapper? Why I think she could be the next head of the Jedi." And thanks, Luke. Go die now. But this one, the the new characters were there but they were fine because no one was insisting they were going to be that important to the plot except for jack and jack was just a MacGuffin, not a character and honestly where he's at now i'm interested yes I, i'm very much interested in a ship's counselor who is obviously mentally ill <laughs> that can only be have- funny and also, I also have a feeling that, you know, I kind of like, I think I can see Seb, although glad it's been a year, so it's not like she's going to need him to like, you know, she's going to help him deal with his border fight. He seems perfectly fine now. I truly believe that the ship's, the counselor, the captain, total Nepo baby moment. He got the Nepo baby. He was right. Yeah. I mean, Jack as a character falls flat for me. And I, I don't blame the actor. The actor's not at all doing what he's asked to do. And he is good. He is good. That scene, that scene in the real fast, I'm sorry, that scene in the collective when um, Jean-Luc went back in to go after him, that was a great scene between those two. It really was. I think it worked, but I mean, the the emotion there, they were awesome together. It worked because I, as a viewer, wanted it to work. I just wanted to get out of there. I'm not invested in this relationship. I know it's narratively the key to the story and that Picard's got to turn the key. So turn it, baby, turn it. Listen to him, Jack. Your, your, your dad knows what he's talking about. Let's get the fuck out. I tried to be fair about it and wondered how I would feel if I were watching a new Star Trek show and Jack Crusher, secret son of Bev and John Luke, was one of the characters. And he went through with them what he went through in this. I'm thinking, no, he. I don't think I would care. And it's not. Mm-hmm. it's not a lack of charisma on the actor's part. I don't feel it adds anything, and it was it was temporary to begin with. It's like Jack had a bad fever, and now he's fine. Jack's going to be romping around. I just don't. He's not that interesting. What was cool about him, except what was wrong with him, and now they fix what was wrong with him, so there's nothing cool about him. Which is why I'm hoping 
that if we do get the Enterprise G show, you know, the main characters are Seven and Raffi. That I would like. Seven, Seven's one of the more complex and interesting characters. They have. I mean, it was perfect that she was paired with Shaw. Also, yes. deeply flawed, deeply conflicted, deeply complex, highly interesting character. That show, yes. I would have. I would have binged it. Yes, I, absolutely. Now, and I have to admit, you know, I will admit, uh, the fact that they actually got Raffi back on the G made me happy. So it's seven and Raffi together. I was totally cool with that. That's why I'm, I'm cool like, with it too. Right, but as much as I want Shaw and Seven, Seven and Raffi is the captain in XO. I, I would watch that ship. I'm down with watching those adventures. Agreed. <laughs> now, I will say two things that I want to say first off is um, one even though the scene completely invoked um, Empire Strikes Back, I absolutely love the, I'll see you with our boy, I know where he is. Yes, and, and I liked it because, again, they were giving respect to some characters who have become memeable and risible. I think Sean Ferris was right that that whole thing was a deliberate finger to the, oh, Deanna broke the, the ship. Absolutely, but it worked. It absolutely worked i cannot lie as soon as as soon as he said i'll be waiting for you with our boy and it cut to her i said leia hear me leia yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the timing when i said it was perfect because i used to go leia hear me leia and she goes i know where he is <laughs> i was proud of myself for the timing on that i can't man, lie. That's, yeah that's like watching uh Wizard of Oz and putting on Dark Side of the Moon at just the right moment. <laughs> it could never happen again if I planned it, so I was happy. I mean, but again, it was pure Empire Strikes Back, but oh my God, did it work. No. Well, it worked It worked because of the, the non-Star Wars characters that Terry Metallus and his writers have been nurturing this whole season. They made the Riker-Troy relationship important. They made sure we were all invested in them staying together and getting past their problem. And the the time we spent on that relationship and being asked to care about it was vindicated. And, and I just if if you can plant something that works on its own and then pay it off later, that's that's two bites at the golden apple, my friend. Now, I do have to go into something that kind of pissed me off to use the uh, to use the uh, Sean thing. This got my um. I'm not going to say trilithium down, but you might big down for the season. Okay. And as Mr. Farrick said, you know, Terry Metalis had been teasing. Nobody is safe. Nobody is safe. Let's look at who died, shall we? There were three main character deaths over the course of the show. Two of them were legacy characters who came back for an episode and then died, both female. Take from that what you will. And the third was Shaw. He, Terry Metalis did say, you know, kept saying, oh, anybody could die. And of course, none of the main characters did. And I really, really got annoyed in the final episode when it got to the point when everyone's saying they're like goodbyes on the cube. And by that point, I'm like, these people aren't going to die. I know they're not going to die. I had no sense of danger at that point. That's not what those scenes are about, though. I... I know exactly what you're saying, and, and I, I'm picturing those scenes in my head. And what I think about in moments like that isn't that the director or the writers are trying to make me think that the danger is real. You know, in a movie, it's certainly possible. But in this kind of uh, enterprise, to be part of the expression, it's it's not very likely. I didn't think they were going to die. But what I was that moment was about for me was 
you know, the old death concentrates the mind thing. It's like somebody's finally going to try to say something that they should have said a long time ago. And he didn't even get it out, Picard, in his attempt to tell Riker what he means to him. You know, Riker just cut him off and says, you know, I know. And mm-hmm. when the fact that Riker cut him off and didn't make him say it shows that Riker does indeed. No. That's oh, what that moment was I'm for not- me. The moments worked. That's the thing. I mean, the individual moments worked. But again, I got to see them like I'm I'm really feeling no danger here at all. <laughs> I mean, like the emotional beats worked, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But the not the through line, but you know what I mean? I mean, the individual beats work, but the journey itself overall didn't work for me. OK, if that makes sense. It does. I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying. I think that to a certain extent, the story was not that important. Like I said, if any other Star Trek crew had taken that on, the story was so thin, it would have been dull. And I don't even know if I could have stuck with it. But the fact that it was packed with rich, meaty moments of acting and emotion kept me watching. And then it would knock my eye out with some incredible effect sequence. The, the effects work was amazing throughout the show. And, and the, the the final episode was astonishing. Oh, and the special effects in that. Yeah. Yeah. So I give the showrunners a lot of credit for for what they did. And what they did was kind of unconventional. It was a sitcom reunion show writ large with the fate of the universe at stake. And starring a bunch of elderly but beloved actors playing iconic characters, there's so many ways to disappoint or piss off the audience that the fact that you even tried is bold. I don't necessarily admire it because people try a lot of things they shouldn't have. Like in 1955, ABC tried to turn Casablanca into a TV series starring film noir stalwart Charles McGraw as a sort of low-rent Bogart monkey. And it was all about Rick getting caught up in Cold War anti-commie nonsense. It was the second least successful show of that season and quickly put up its misery. Then in like 1983, NBC tried it again with David Soule cast in the Bogart role. I remember that. So that wasn't worth doing. That wasn't even worth trying. This, I think, was worth trying. And I think they pulled it off. And, And you know how nitpicky I get about plot holes and... Mm-hmm. Things that don't make sense or loose ends. To me, this was the rare occasion when it wasn't really about that. The The pleasures of the series w- went beyond whatever the narrative offered me, whatever thrills and chills and moments of, hmm. It was mostly, ah, ah, mom and dad, or Uncle Riker, ah, Uncle Worf killed somebody. It's just, it was that. It was that kind of just going through an old photo album. Oh, it's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And then, and then, of course, of course, I do have to bring up, because I know I wanted to ask your thoughts, because I know you have thoughts, the post credit scene. Mm. <laughs> How do you feel about the return of Q? <laughs> uh, okay, so Q, yeah. Q, never my favorite character. John Delancey, a bundle of joie de vivre. Enjoy him very much. Hate the character. Became an annoying crutch, and it just made so much of the the early years of the show silly and and heavy going for me. But they bring him back, fine. Hey, he looks great. 
He's still got that impish twinkle in his eye. And you didn't see season two, so you actually missed some really good Q stuff in season two. I mean, interesting Q stuff in season two and when they used him. But on. again, even that wasn't done entirely properly, I think. <laughs> Q okay. shows up. Oh, okay. Yay. You know, not, not, not my favorite cameo, but all right, come on in. And what's he there to do? He's there to start shit with Jack, my other favorite character. And all I could think about was the end of the MST3K episode, Warrior of the Lost World, where oh Robert Ginty is taking his leave of Persis Kambata because, you know, he's a post-apocalyptic drifter and he's, you know, he might be needed in some other part of the world to kill people and mumble lines. And she says, I'm not sad you're leaving. Our journey is just beginning. And of course, the guys in the theater scream. That was this kind of thing. Oh, Jack. Yeah, Picard's trial is over, but Jack, it's just beginning. Uh, but you know what? I think Seven would be the only other person in Starfleet to punch a cue. I hope so. Because I would, I would expect I nothing want to see. I want to see Seven deal with Q. She would take no shit, and that would make me very happy. And on that note, it's late. It's time to go. It's late. But you should know that we'll be back before too long. You didn't get a brand new song because I lied.